and hi. <laughs> and you know what? Aloha. <laughs> well, this is sort of the story. It's the podcast where we tell each other stories. And, and also, also, you are here. Well, and I'm Max. And I'm Janie. And we're going to tell you some stories today. We're pretty excited about it. I realized I almost accidentally did the opening to Hot Ones. (laughs) Hot Ones, the show with hot wings and even hotter questions. This is Hot Ones, the story with hot tea and also even hotter hosts. (laughs) (laughs) I don't watch that show. (laughs) It's fine. (laughs) But I think I nailed it. Yeah, welcome guys. Hope you're doing fine. And you enjoyed the last couple episodes. We're almost at episode 30, we were just talking about. Yes. Max has suggested doing another live, like, TikTok live meet and greet sort of storytelling night at episode 30. Yes. We did our last one at 15. We had a couple people show up, and it was very, very cool and sweet, and we would love to hang out with you guys again. That'll be on TikTok, so if you don't have a TikTok account, uh, Why not? (laughs) What are are you, old? Don't be a fucking square. Yeah. Be there. (laughs) Uh, yeah, so see you in two weeks. Bye! Oh, not bye. Okay. We still have a whole podcast to do. Uh, I'm going first this week. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, I'm excited to tell you some stories. I'm also excited. Okay. Let's do it to it. Oh, bye. So, Max, if you're playing sort of the story bingo... I am. As you are, always. Mm-hmm. Now it's time for me to give you one of your bingo squares. My grandmother was from the Philippines. Ooh. From Antipolo. That might be two bingo squares. No, it's one. She, okay, fine. Do you want me Whatever. to look over the sheet again? Because I yeah, can show you. really quickly. Can you just look over the one that we definitely made? Um, <laughs> so my grandmother was from the Philippines, from Antipolo. And she used to tell us the story of what she called the little people. And so, and I've told a couple of it's these stories squares. on here. I know, I know. <laughs> I love talking about my grandma and the little people. And so I've always been obsessed with this. Basically, I'm going to give you a rough overview of her little people. They are tiny little people. (laughs) They're basically like little fairy. How informative. They're basically like little fairy people. You don't really see them unless they want you to, but they are constantly around. And if you want to be on their good side, you leave them gifts. And in this way, they are like every other little fairy folk or fae folk or wee folk that you've ever heard of. Mm -hmm. Right? So she used to tell me this story about how there was a man and a woman in her village and one day they woke up and their baby, they had like a new baby, its face was completely pinched. Like the day before it was normal, the next day the whole face starting at the lip was pinched so badly the skin was like turning up and the baby like was almost unresponsive. And they were like, what happened to our baby? Like, they could not figure it out. And it just looked like it had a horrific injury. Almost, she described it almost like a cleft palate, but one that came on, like, almost overnight. Mm -hmm. And so the man and the woman tried everything they could. And eventually they called what my grandmother calls a witch doctor. And the doctor came over and, you know, performed a bunch of, like, ceremonies and looked into it and then came back and said, hey, one, there's you have a family of little people living in your house. And they were like... We do. And they're like, yeah. And up till now, it's been kind of fine. But one of you stepped on the wife <laughs> and killed her. And they she were like, oh, no. Squished. She got squished. <laughs> so you squished her wife. And so to punish this family, they said that the little people pinched their baby, basically. And it's like something that actually 
like that's a story that like came up a lot in their village is that babies especially would get pinched by the little people and so they tried to like make offerings and stuff to them but like they had already offended them so much that i'm pretty sure the baby died oh so, my god yeah <laughs> this is and this isn't like uh you know the stories are told this is just something my grandmother fully believed it was a story that happened while she was alive and was hearing it it was like real time for her so it's something that she really believed. And I'm going to go into another one of her little people stories a little bit later. But last night, I started to read a book that I got on Fearless Women. It's an anthology of like fairy tales where the women are the protagonists. And it was really cool. And I'm, I was looking up stories from Iroquois legends. And as I was looking up that, I was like, I'm going to do this. I'm going to do two stories of Iroquois monsters, basically, and women who defeat them. And I was like all excited about it. And then I went to go do research because, you know, <laughs> the first story was called The Vampire Skeleton. And I was like, this doesn't seem like maybe an Iroquois word. <laughs> I just don't know. If I don't think <laughs> either of those words. <laughs> <laughs> well, like, it just, it seems to me. And then I looked it up and, the, like, obviously the woman who uh, wrote the anthology is an Australian woman. And I was like, okay, like, she's obviously not Iroquois and I'm pretty sure a white woman. And so I was like, okay, let's look up the original where she got the source. She does source all her stuff and then that person, I'm pretty sure, was also white. And I was like, all right, so I can't just say the story of the vampire skeleton <laughs> written by two white people and be like, classic Iroquois. <laughs> so then I went to go look it up. And while I was looking up Iroquois legends, specifically looking for this particular monster, which I could not find, by the way. So mm. I'm not saying it doesn't exist. If you are part of the Haudenosaunee like, grouping and you do know this legend, please reach out to me because I do want to tell it. But again, I only found it written by white people. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm not going to tell it because of that. But upon looking for this, I came across something called the Joge O, which is Iroquois or Haudenosaunee, which is, it It means people of the longhouses is what like Iroquois people call themselves. I don't know if you knew this, but Iroquois was actually a name given to them by like enemy tribes. It hmm. means like enemy adder or evil adder or something like that. Like it's the same way that Sioux was given to the Sioux people, it means enemy. It was like a way to like, it was kind of like propaganda. <laughs> Interesting. And it made everybody not trust them. So it's kind of fun little history. Yeah. But they call themselves the Haudenosaunee people. It's the people of the longhouses. It's how they lived because they were not nomadic tribes. So they built really long houses. Mm-hmm. Oh, so well, the Joge-O, <laughs> they were so long <laughs> that I'm not even going to finish the story. I'm just going to describe the house. <laughs> No, so There's a house and it just keeps going and going and going. <laughs> so I'm actually going to go through two different indigenous tribes versions of the little people that sound a lot like my grandma's version of the little people because this is a pretty universal con- like construct and I thought it was really fun to go through yeah. two different like, you know, cultures, technically three different cultures. So the first one was compiled by Glenn Welker on indigenouspeople.net. He compiled a bunch of native stories. I couldn't find a lot about him personally. Like I searched and searched, couldn't find anything about Glenn Welker. I have read his stuff before, but basically he made it his mission to compile compile a bunch of indigenous people's stories. And he focused a lot on the Iroquois. So he might be like a member of the Iroquois nation, but I'm not fully sure that he is. But he did work for the National Museum of the American Indians, which again makes me think that he was a native man. But I couldn't find that for sure. So that's all I have on him. But here we go. This is called The Gifts of the Little People, also called the Jogeo. So there was a young boy and his parents both die. And he is then given to his uncle 
who is supposed to care for him. But his uncle is super lazy and just really abusive and terrible. And so he immediately is like, I'm not taking care of this kid. He treats him like he's his servant. Like he makes him go out and do all the hunting. This kid does all the cleaning. Like he works like a dog for this uncle. And then in return, the uncle dresses him in rags and refuses to like make anything else for him or to like purchase anything else for him. Like he just does not want to care for this kid. And he abuses him constantly. So he's living a pretty terrible life. This actually gives him the name Dirty Clothes. That's what people call him. Cinderella. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. So Dirty Clothes is living a full-on Cinderella story right now. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Very romantic. <laughs> so one day, Dirty Clothes is out hunting. And he sees, like, and he has these squirrels hanging from his belt. So every time he shoots a squirrel, he'll tie it to his belt and then keep going. And that's, and he's a really good hunter. He has his bows and arrows. And he's like, this is something he's used to doing. But he keeps walking. Like, he's trying to find more and more food for his uncle. Otherwise, when he gets home, he'll probably get beat for not having enough food having been gathered. And so he keeps walking. He comes to a cliff that rises out from the water. And this is, the legend has it that this cliff, this area, is where the little people beat their drums. And everybody is scared of this cliff. Like, hunters won't go anywhere near it. They're like, I, we don't want to mess with the little people because they're kind of fickle, right? And so he knows this, but his mom used to tell him that if you have good in your heart, you shouldn't be afraid to go anywhere. Like, the creatures of the forest, all of these people around them, they can sense when you mean them ill. And so you don't really have anything to fear if you don't have any ill intentions. And this kid is like... I don't have any ill intentions, so he keeps walking. And he sees a squirrel kind of, like, climbing up a hickory tree, and so he kind of, like, gets really still and quiet, and he pulls his bow and arrow out, and he's just about to fire when he hears a tiny voice whisper, Brother, shoot him again. You missed him. And he's like, (laughs) what? And so he looks around for a bit. Like, he cannot tell. And he's like, shoot him again. Just one more time. You missed the shot. And he looks down, and at his feet, he sees two tiny little hunters. Right? They haven't seen him yet, because he's been standing there pretty still hunting. But these two tiny little hunters are like, they have this tiny little bow and arrow, and they're holding it up, and they're about to fire. And so he kind of watches for a bit, and the one hunter does fire his arrow, but it comes up short. He's too far away. The squirrel is too far up. And also, the squirrel's a little bit too big. So he's like oh, they're never going to get that squirrel. (laughs) He's like, oh no. (laughs) And he sees they don't have anything hanging on their belts. Like they haven't pulled any like game. And so he fires, he decides like, okay, I'm going to help him out. So he pulls back his arrow and he fires and it hits the squirrel right away and the squirrel falls down. And so the little people are like, oh my God, you got him. What? (laughs) Oh, sure you missed. And so they run up and they're like, yeah. But then they see, they're like, this arrow's too big. Whose arrow is this? And they look around and they catch sight of dirty clothes. And they're like, hey, you, you shot him. Good job. And they're like, yeah, that's a great shot. And we'll come over here and get your, you know, get your prize. Like you, <laughs> you did it. <laughs> and Dirty Clothes is like, oh, no, I shot that one for you. Like you take that one. And in fact, I can see that you guys haven't caught anything today. He's like, take these ones too. And he takes the other squirrels off his belt. And he's like, these ones are also yours. Just think, you know, thank you for letting me hunt on your land. And the little people are like, delighted. They're like, that's great. Thank you so much. And so they all kind of, they dance a little bit. (laughs) They like pick up the squirrel and they're like, hey, uh, why don't you come back with us? We want to be able to thank you properly. We also want to tell people what you did for us. This like has never happened before. Like come with us. And Dirty Clothes is thinking like, I could go with them, but like I might get in trouble if I like leave. But then he looks up and he realizes like the sun isn't very high yet. Like he has all day to hunt. He's like, I can... 
I can still, I'll have time if I just go with them right now. And so he walks with them. And along the way, they're chatting with him. They're just in such good spirits, these two little hunters. And they take (laughs) him down to the bottom of that cliff where they have a tiny canoe. And the canoe is like the size of his shoe. (laughs) And they climb in, they're like, get in! And he's like, oh, no. <laughs> they're like, trust us, just step in. And so he steps into the canoe and he's like, I'm about to drown these little people, my new little friends. <laughs> this is terrible. But as soon as his foot touches it, he starts to shrink down. And eventually he's as small as they are. And he's in their canoe. And he's marveling at this. He's like, this is, whoa, what magic is this? It's fantastic. And they put their oars in the water. And as they row, their canoe starts to rise up and up and up. And it starts to fly through the air. And it goes above the cliffs, above the trees, above his village, farther and farther until it makes it to the top of this mountain where there's the, like cliff faces. And they go into one of the cliffs, and or the caves, I mean. And that is where the little people live. And so now they get out and they run out and they tell everybody what he did. And they're like, this is the sky. And everybody starts to like dance and cheer. And they're like, wow, welcome. And so they immediately like prepare a feast and they start to just teach him. They're like, you know, like, you're so great. Well, here's some more things you might want to know. And so he ends up spending four days with them where he's just partying and dancing. And they're telling him everything they know. They're telling him all about like the secrets of the forest. They tell him all about growing corn and the squash and all these things that feed humans. They're like, this is a better way to do it. We notice you guys is doing this it's great but like you could be doing so much more and um this is how you honor the animals and this is how you do this and then at the end the last thing they teach him on day four is they teach him a dance and they're like this is our special dance it honors the jogeo it honors the little people so they're like it honors the jogeo and when people do it we love it when people do this dance so we're gonna teach it to you but you have to do it in the dark it's called like the dark dance and basically when you do it in the dark, it allows the little people to come and dance with you without being seen. And so when you sing the song and you dance this dance, then the little people can come in too. And it's like you're honoring them and you're joining together as like a people. And it's like a dance of like unity. And he's like, that's great. Thanks. So they dance this dance all night long. And then finally, day four comes and he says like, hey, I have to go home. I've been away for four days. I'm going to be in so much trouble. And they're like, okay. So they all say goodbye to him. And the two little hunters take him back down on their canoe. They fly back down to the river and they walk him through the forest. And as they're walking through the forest, they start pointing out. They're like, hey, you see this plant here? This is what it's called. This is what it can do. And he starts memorizing, right? He's like, okay, thanks. I won't forget that. And he's committing all of these plant names to memory. And he gets up and he finally sees the edge of his vi- his uh, village. And he turns around to say goodbye to his two new friends. And they have disappeared so he's like oh okay well bye <laughs> i guess <laughs> i don't feel like we had something there but all right. <laughs> and so he keeps walking and he notices something really strange right away his village looks different and he's mm. like oh which is another this is a universal concept this kills me yeah so We've talked about this in uh, previous episodes over also. and over and over a universal trend and so he notices his village has changed and he's looking at it and a woman he doesn't really recognize walks up to him and says, hey, stranger, welcome. Who are you? And he's like, what? You don't know? Because it's not like a big village. Like, it's just wild. And he's like, "Um, my name is Dirty Clothes. And she's like, why? (laughs) And she's like, you're dressed so well. Why do they call you that? And he looks down and he realizes he's not wearing his rags anymore. He doesn't know when it switched, but he's wearing like really fine buckskin and it's like embroidered with moose hair and it has porcupine quills. And it's just like the most beautiful garment he's ever seen. And he's like, whoa, yeah, I guess that is kind of weird. It's an old nickname. Can I ask you that longhouse over there, a man lives there, right? There's a man and his nephew who wears rags. 
And she's like, oh, that lazy thing? Like, <laughs> why would you ask about him? He died years ago. And honestly, he never did much for anyone. He was a burden. Like, everybody hated him. <laughs> Pretty relieved when he died, actually. Why would you ask about him? Like, a fine young warrior like yourself. And he's like, a warrior? And he... Again, he looks down at himself and he realizes he is no longer a little boy. He has grown in these last four days and now he's like a strong warrior. He's like taller than everyone else in the village. And he's like, what happened? Because again, he spent the whole time little. So it wasn't like he yeah. noticed anything. Also, he was probably taller than anyone else anyway. <laughs> and so he goes to the village and he immediately sits down with all these people and he starts to tell them his story. Now, there's a bunch of old people there, of course, and they all, they remember dirty clothes and they can see him and they're like, oh my God, like, it is you. Like, that's so crazy. So he tells them everything he knows. He tells them everything he learned. And the last thing he tells them is how to do the dark dance. And that night they put out all the fires and everything like that. And they all sing and they all start to dance. And as they dance in the dark, they hear the voices of the little people join in with them. And they realize that like, oh, they're here and they're dancing with us. And we've gained this friendship. And so uh, Glenn Welker ends with, to this day, the little people remain the friends of the people of the longhouse and the dark dance is still done. That's so nice. Yeah. Kind of fun, right? <laughs> I like that a lot. I like that he um, gave them a squirrel and in turn became kind of like a living god. <laughs> he gave them three squirrels. <laughs> oh, you're, you're right. <laughs> you know? <laughs> yeah. The one thing that is universal is that the little people give more like than they get but they also will punish if they don't get so mm -hmm. it's the idea like you can get on their bad side and this way all the hunters are afraid of them right like they are little but they can cause a lot of damage but if you are kind to them and you respect them then they tend to give way more than yeah. what what you gave to them it's the it's the gesture you know yeah and in a lot of mythologies also um the little people like you can give that like a minor slight if you, like, pass them on the road and don't say hi, yes. then they'll be like, oh, and your whole family's dead. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, so... I'm burning your village to the ground, motherfucker. <laughs> well, so there's a second one that I found. This isn't Iroquois. This is from the Mohegan legends, from the Mohegan tribes. They are from Connecticut, basically. That's, like, the area that they are right now. So the Mohegan legend, they call them not Jogeo, they call them uh, Makiawisug, which I'm probably pronouncing that way wrong. But basically, that's their own version of the little people. They believe there's a couple rules and they, you know, there's a couple rules that you can follow, but there's also a couple of things you can look out for and how to, you know, know they're around. One is the little people only come out after nightfall because, again, they don't want to be seen. They're all about being in the dark and being unseen by humans. If you hear the call of the whippoorwill, that at night, they'll, st they'll start hearing this whippoorwill, like, with their call. The little people, that's when they're, like, kind of coming out. It's, like, uh, announcing their arrival. You're supposed to leave baskets of food and other gifts for them. And so the Mohegan people have these baskets that were specially made to put all of the little people gifts. And they would leave them, like, at the edge of the woods. And then the legend had it, the little people would come and they would accept those offerings. So, and actually, uh, when they come out, they're wearing moccasin flowers for shoes, which I don't know what a moccasin flower is personally, but I love the idea that they're wearing tiny little flowers as moccasins so and cute. they walk in. And actually, makia wisug means whip or will moc moccasins. Hmm. That's like literally the direct translation. So, um, And if you're wondering what a whip or will call sounds like, it sounds like the word whip or will. Whip or will. Yep. <laughs> so here's the rules. If you 
see a little person, which you're not supposed to, right? So if you do accidentally see one, you cannot stare directly at them. It's rude. Uh, <laughs> if you do stare at them and you are rude, they'll be rude right back and they'll point their finger at you and you'll find that you cannot move anymore and then they'll come up and they'll steal all your shit. <laughs> <laughs> like, and let that be a lesson to you. <laughs> yeah, don't be um, rude. Also, you shouldn't talk about them in the summer when they're most active. So we're still technically in spring. Yep, so we're done. It's <laughs> It, I know this is coming out in May. Uh, still technically spring. So yeah. it's fine. In return for kindness, for all the gifts, and for respecting them, the little people taught the Mohegan people how to grow corn and how to use healing herbs. So there's one legend from the Mohegan people that I thought was really fun. It says that amongst the Makiawisug was a little like healer, an old woman named Granny Squanet. And <laughs> Granny Squanet... <laughs> Max... <laughs> Sorry, I, um, I'm i playing a and d campaign right now, and my fiancé is playing a character named Great Granny Sweetness. Oh. So, <laughs> I uh, really thought that I was going to just... Yeah. He, he actually pulled this from Legend. Yeah, I was... Just hearing Squana instead of Sweetness was a weird jolt to my system. <laughs> so, there's an old woman named Granny Squanet. And she, uh, legend had it, she would cause huge storms whenever she fought with her husband, which is hilarious. Uh, <laughs> she kind of controlled the weather. But also, she was a super powerful healer. And healers in the Mohegan tribe, whenever they were like having a particularly hard time with somebody's illness or somebody's hurt, they would call out to Granny Squanet. They'd be like, I need your help. Like, please come help, whatever. And they would call to her or they'd leave offerings to her. And then she would, you know, come in and like help them out. And so she was pretty important for the Mohegan people. And one night there was an old woman, a human woman, a healer, and she was in, she was like a well-known healer. She was in her house and there was a big storm, right? So she's waiting out the storm. It's getting nighttime. And then from the forest, she starts to hear the calls of whippoorwills. And she's like, oh, that's so weird. In the storm and everything, these birds are calling out. And so she looks outside her window and she doesn't see anybody. Like she doesn't see any like whippoorwills flying, whatever. And the storm is getting worse and worse. And so she's like, ah, so she closes the window. But very soon after she hears those calls of the whippoorwills, she gets a knock on her door and she opens it. And there's a little boy standing on her porch. And he's like, hi. He introduces himself. He says, my name is Weegoon and I need you to come with me. I'm with the Makioisug people and we need help from a healer. So if you could please just come with me, it would be great. <laughs> She's like, <laughs> okay. So she gets her stuff, you know, she gathers her supplies and she closes her door and she walks with him and they walk through the rain, they walk through the storm and eventually they start descending down, down, down underground. And she finds, <laughs> um, what? You said that with the cadence of down, 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 down to down. Goblin Town. <laughs> <laughs> you need to uh, get out of D&D. <laughs> That's not from D&D. <laughs> Where is it from? The Hobbit. That's from down, D&D. Down, down, down to Goblin Town. Yeah, here's the thing. Uh, that's from D&D. <laughs> All right? Name one difference. <laughs> I can't. There you are can't. so many she that I can't name a that's single like you're difference You're asking me to, D &D to say the difference between an orange and a Toyota Camry. <laughs> I don't even know where to begin. <laughs> it is not. <laughs> so... Guys, by the way, if you can answer that riddle, we've been trying to solve it for weeks. What is the difference between an orange and a Toyota Camry? <laughs> yeah, message us at sortofthestory at gmail.com. Just help us out. <laughs> and if you have any pictures of oranges in Toyota Camrys, <laughs> we're trying to solve a bet. Or if you have a Toyota Camry that is orange. That's never, that's impossible. <laughs>
<laughs> so, <laughs> so she goes all the way down into the ground and she finds uh, herself amongst these big, like this huge rock structure that's shaped like a beehive. And they take her into one of the little compartments and there's an old woman lying on a bed. And that's Granny Squanet. And she is very sick. She's clearly close to death. And actually she, her sickness is the reason why there's such a heavy storm is because she cannot control what's happening anymore. It's like every time she loses control and fights with her husband, a storm happens. Like it's almost like she's keeping the storms at bay. It seems. Mm -hmm. So all the little people are like, Hey, she can't die. Like it's really imperative. She doesn't die. And so this healer woman sits down and gets to work and it takes her almost a full month to be able to cure granny Squanet, but she eventually does. And the little people are so happy. They give her this basket and it's filled with gifts and they're like, open this when you get home. Never forget us. We are really grateful. And then they blindfold her and they lead her back home, which is weird because they, I don't think they blindfolded her on the way there, but I guess they were like, <laughs> she's never going to remember this. Um, and then when she, like most yeah. of us don't remember what we had for lunch yesterday. I remember how to get places. That's not true. I that's not I can't true. remember anything. Inside the <laughs> basket, when she gets home, she opens it. There are quartz crystals, painted skins, and bunches of herbs. And then oh, she has, nice. like, a really great relationship with the little people from then on out because they know that she's the one that helped them. That's so nice. Yeah. So that's from, uh, that story was from mohegan.nsn.us. There's a bunch of stuff. Just look up Mohegan tribe. We'll put it in the show notes. But that's their story of the Makiawisug. So two different tribes, two different stories of the little people. And I want to tell... I, one more, I know I'm I'm telling a bunch of stories, but my grandmother, when she would talk about the little people, this is almost exactly how she would describe them, right? Like this relationship, everything is almost the exact same. And I've told this story on this podcast before, but welcome to episode 28. <laughs> You're going to hear it again. But when my grandmother was little, she said that when she was about second grade, she stopped going to school at third grade uh, when the Japanese occupied Antipolo. But she was in the second grade and a little boy in her class, you know, they were all walking home and they, they branched off to walk their separate ways to their houses. And he was walking down the street. He's in a school uniform and he's, you know, making his way through like this long, long stretch to get home through like farmland and stuff. And he disappeared. Like, and he was gone for two weeks. He never made it home. Everybody searched for him. They searched the woods. They searched everywhere. At that point, they had pretty much said, like, oh, an animal probably got him. Like, he's little. He's walking alone. Like, it, there's no trace of him. He was probably taken by an animal. And so they had all, like, done their mourning for him, and they had pretty much stopped searching. But they were all very upset by this. And then about two weeks later, a farmer is coming down that same road, and he sees this little boy. And he's in his school uniform. He's clean. He is totally fine. He looks normal, and he's walking home. So the farmer stops and is like, hey, we've been looking for you. Like, your parents are looking everywhere for you. We thought an animal took you. Like, what happened? And so he, like, you know pulls him onto whatever he's driving, uh, probably like caribou or pulling something if I'm, you know, yeah. just thinking about the area. As he's trying to, you know, get information from this boy, the little boy opens his mouth to talk. But instead of speaking forward, he's speaking backwards. Like he, everything he like opens his mouth to say just comes out almost like you hit re rewind. So it's not even like, you know, the cadence of gibberish. It's like the full cadence of something on rewind. Mm -hmm. And he looks confused. The man is like, whoa, what is this? Very creepy. Mm -hmm. And so they bring him to doctors. And every time he tries to talk or do anything, it's just all full backwards speak. And so they spend about a year with him. He doesn't go to school with my grandmother anymore. Like he goes to the school, but he has like his own special classes because they have to reteach him his own language. And after a year, 
he's able to finally kind of start to explain what happened to him. And his story is that as he was walking along the road, he saw a little person in the grass, like in the tall grass, and they were waving to him and kind of laughing and like gesturing him over. So he walked over to them and they said, uh, you know, follow us. And so they kept walking into the forest and he's a little boy and he's like, all right, <laughs> here I go. You're cute. And he follows them deep into the forest, into a tree. And he climbs in through this tree and he sees there's this whole host of little people living in this big tree. And at one side, there's a big throne and a, like the king is sitting on this throne. He's looking out as all these little people are dancing. And so they're all dancing and having fun and eating. And so he starts dancing with them and he's like sweaty and just having the, gra- the, the greatest time of his life. And eventually the king calls him over and says, hey, the reason why you're here is because we need salt. And the little boy's like, what? What? <laughs> he's like, salt. We need salt. It's what we eat. It's what we like. We're obsessed with it. We need salt. We're running out. So you need to get us some salt. Okay. And the little boy is like, yeah, I'm a little boy. I don't actually have a lot of access to salt. So um, I'm really sorry. I don't, I can't get you that. And they kind of like negotiate with him for a little while. They realize like, oh yeah, he doesn't, he doesn't know where any salt is. <laughs> and so they're like, all right, well, thanks. You can go now. And he's like, oh, okay. So then he like crawls back out of the tree and he walks back to the road and then he starts to walk home again. So all in all, he was gone for like 30 minutes to an hour. Um, but when he finally was, you know, found that, that farmer on the side of the road, he was told he'd been gone for two weeks. Mm-hmm. And so that's my grandmother's story of the little people. And then that also, the whole salt thing, there's one more story from Iceland which I heard on the podcast Imaginary Worlds, which is a great podcast. You all should go listen to it. But basically, the story from Iceland of a woman, an old woman, who followed the fairies, or the little people, the Icelandic little people, into a tree. And when she went into their tree, uh, everybody was dancing, just like in my grandma's story from when she was little. Everybody was dancing and having a great time, but all around them were huge pillars of salt. On every, like, wall, uh, this huge trunk, you know, this round room, where it's just these huge pillars of salt. And they were doing this dance and having the greatest time and, like, I don't know, eating the salt, I'm assuming, but, like, they were just having the greatest time. And in that story, the old woman dances and dances and dances until she dies. Um, she can't stop dancing. Mm, and that's she dies. In, in Irish... Uh... Like we folk tales, that's something that happens. If you go into a fairy mound, that's one of the things that can happen to you is that you just dance until you die. Mm-hmm. But also, it makes sense in Iceland, uh, the pillars of salt make a lot of sense because a lot of Icelandic food is preserved yeah. with salt. So it's all like a lot of the, of the meats historically are like salt brined uh, to preserve them through the winter. Yeah. Um, so that makes a lot of make, sense. Yeah, it's like a very coveted commodity to have a lot of salt so it makes sense yeah but just like you know little things that uh when you put all of these folk tales and folklore together from around the world the fact that again and these are i my my two sides of my family the native american specifically sioux side of my family and then the filipino side the fact that you can find very similar stories with very similar details that are so old kind of makes you think (laughs) You know, I mean, where do they come from? Mm -hmm. Where do they go? (laughs) Um, Yeah, we've also talked before about the trope of like, oh, you know, you're asked to come along with something that you don't really understand as like a mark of gratitude. They're like, oh, let me thank you. Come to my house for lunch. And then you go and then you're gone for a little for what feels like a little while. And then when you return, Mm -hmm. you found that it's been a very long time. It's the Rip Van Winkle. It's the um, O'Sheen. O'Sheen, all of that. So that's a really fun trope that I like a lot. And we've told, and again, we've said it several times on this podcast. There's a lot of stories that, you know, you can track back 
on this podcast, 28 whole episodes, <laughs> you can track back of us talking about this. So that is very fun. Yeah. If you guys have, and again, if you guys have your own stories of this, if you have family legends about little people, I want to read them. <laughs> I just, I'm so curious about just the little people or the wee folk or the fairy folk. Like just, if you have your own family legends that grandparents pass down, like, and you want to share it with us, like email us a sort of the story at gmail.com. So yeah. that I can uh, read all your little words. <laughs> and send us a picture of an orange uh, Toyota Camry. <laughs> if you have both, you own the podcast. Okay. Now. You have to take a video of yourself telling the story out loud from inside your orange Toyota Camry. Yes. And then uh, we'll give you the podcast. Uh, Toyota Corolla? I think I said a Toyota Camry. Are you guys our boss now? <laughs> you got to stop making deals. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, Max. Janie. You want to take a break? I do. Woo! See you later. Forever. <laughs> Bye. It's been really nice. No, guys. don't Thank leave. You Please so don't much leave. for coming here. Uh, <laughs> we'll never see you again. Bye. <laughs> Welcome to Sort of the Story. Stop. My name is Janie. <laughs> Stop saying goodbye. See you later, guys. Anyway, guys, thank you so and much for coming. And also stop saying hello. <laughs> All right, it's my turn, okay? It's my turn. All right. Guys, uh, thank you so much for coming. Uh, and we'll see you next week. Uh, bye. So anyways, this is the last episode of our podcast. Um, <laughs> unfortunately, you know, we just, we have other projects that we'd like to pursue individually. <laughs> no. I'm this sorry. Is... <laughs> what are you doing without me? <laughs> I have a whole life, dude rude this is not the last episode that was a joke uh we're gonna keep doing this until we die what if they all just started collectively just throwing their computers out like now <laughs> then they had problems that we are not responsible for send us your computers <laughs> for our collection okay so my story okay sorry go ahead <laughs> my story is called the seven bones it is from a story collection that i got it's called the telltale lilac bush and other west virginia ghost tales by yes. ruth and music published by the university press of kentucky huh, amazing yes so there's actually there's a really great section at the beginning that talks about sort of west virginia as a location in folklore and i'm actually just gonna read the first little paragraph of the intro for this book so the first paragraph of the introduction, anyone who has ever lived in West Virginia or even traveled through the state can easily see what an ideal place it would be for ghosts. <laughs> it is an unending sequence of hills and valleys with a backdrop of other mountains in the distance. Over all these mountains and valleys is a wilderness of shrubbery and trees so that genuinely lonesome places exist in almost all sections of the state. Hundreds or even thousands of ghosts could gather nightly on West Virginia's hills or sigh from the treetops and few living souls would know the difference. They're right. Too. Yeah. They're completely... If you've ever driven through West Virginia, even going to the little towns, like, they all have this quality of, like, yeah, we've been here. <laughs> yeah. There's a very old quality Someone's to... died here. Yeah. Re recently, maybe. Yes. So... Uh, Somebody's currently being murdered in this house. <laughs> <laughs> um, but Ruth Ann Music, who is the writer of this book, this book, by the way, was published in 1965, I think. This is a cool cover. Yeah, it's great. But she is... She lived from 1897 to 1974. Um, she grew up in Missouri and then moved to Iowa and then Wisconsin and then Arizona and then back to Iowa and then to West Virginia where she spent the rest of her life. And she has done a bunch of work on the folktales of Missouri. And then once she permanently relocated to West Virginia, she did a bunch about the folktales of West Virginia to the point that she revived the 
dormant West Virginia State Folklore Society, which had been dormant since uh, 1917. So in 1950, she revived the West Virginia State Folklore Society because she had become such a sort of such a, a voice in West Virginia folklore. What a cool really lady! Cool. Yeah, she was also an activist for animal rights, um, rights of native peoples, um, environmental causes, and especially uh, mountaintop removal mining and acid rain, preventing those from affecting communities in the way that West Virginia has been really just wrecked <laughs> by massive yeah. industry and especially the mining industry. So the mining industry, when it came to West Virginia, uh, mm-hmm. there was a huge boom of industrialism, which n- drove a bunch of people out. Anyone who wasn't in the mining industry, or I think it, the logging industry was the other one that was kind of a big thing in West Virginia, was kind of driven out unless they were useful to that. Um, and it also it destroyed a lot of the land that people had learned to live off of and everything like that. So West Virginia was just you know, rocked by the industrial changes in the mining industry, which is where this story comes from. They ha- There's a whole section in this book. This book is organized by topic. So there are stories about jealous rivals, stories about wives who return, Ooh. like uh, yeah. from death, um, ghostly children, no. murdered kinsmen, omens of death, deadly visions, headless ghosts, hidden money, haunted places, Slaves, murdered peddlers, mine ghosts, railroad ghosts, <laughs> animals and birds, weird creatures, and immigrant ghosts. This so, is so cool. Yeah. So. Come here. <laughs> Sorry, there's a tiny cat uh, smelling our microphone. Come here. Uh, so this is from the section on immigrant ghosts. Cool. Um, again, because of the mining industry, lots of people, when they came to the U.S. in the early 20th century or even in the late 19th century, um, when they came to the U.S. and they had to find jobs, a lot of times they ended up as workers in um, industries like logging and mining. And so Mm -hmm. a lot of people, especially from the Balkans, ended up in West Virginia. So there is a special section in this book specifically for stories that originated elsewhere and were brought to West Virginia and became a part of the West Virginia folkloric landscape because of the people who brought them there. Mm-hmm. So this uh, this folktale ghost story originally came from Czechoslovakia. Okay. Which is very exciting. <laughs> I want to read this book later. Like, I keep it's looking really at good. it. Like, also, before you even begin, just the backdrop of West Virginian, like, mining communities, there mm-hmm. is... A Sabrina, like, Chilling Adventures of Sabrina, like, feel about it. Like, mine yeah. specifically ghost stories and horror surrounding mines is such a specific, like, animal. Like, there's yeah. there's nothing else in the world like it. Mm-hmm. And I also feel like it's so closed in a really specific way, if that makes sense. Yeah, just, if you've never been in a mine, you can't <laughs> really... I've never terrifying. been in a mine. I would like to point out, I've never been in a mine. I've I been in a cave. <laughs> I've actually been in one of the mines in West Virginia. Um, oh. When I was in middle school, we did a, a trip out to the mountains in West Virginia to go caving. And we... so Max, what school did you go to that made children mine? <laughs> <laughs> but we actually we get, had the opportunity to visit one of the mines. And it's like, it just, it goes on forever. And it's all like the passageways are either massive Mm -hmm. because they're trying to get to things that are up higher in the earth than where they originally, you know, struck the passage or they're so tight that only like one person can fit through because why would you mine further if, you know, one person can fit through and they just go on for so long. Um, They're terrifying. So I, uh, (laughs) I read like probably 10, 15 stories from this book because they're not very long in the process of finding the story that I'm going to tell today. And a couple of them deal with mines. And I also have a, claustrophobia of the underground yeah she does. <laughs> personally so stress me out 
a little bit of a lot of it. Okay. Um, but this book is really great. I definitely recommend this as a collection of ghost stories because it's also, it's it's beautiful. And Ruth Ann Music does the thing that we've talked about a lot um, of ethical storytelling where she references where she got the story from, where they're from, when she recorded it, and also any kind of notes that she has for like connections to other stories. And she also gives the classification for all of them and all of the tropes that appear in the stories which, which is, is great wild because didn't you say she was born in like the late 1800s yeah like how did she know to do that and which means by the way when you're like oh it was a sign of the times no it wasn't because yeah. ruth Ann music was born in like 1897 and she still yeah. managed to be an ethical folklorist yep so yeah, like, this book was published in 1965 um, yeah guys the whole, I've, this has been killing me uh, yeah. <laughs> about reading the more we get into folklore. There's no excuse. If Ruth Ann Music could do it, yeah. other, other people could also do it. Yeah. Sorry, go ahead. So anyways, uh, some ghost stories from West Virginia. Uh, the Telltale Lilac Bush. Definitely look it up if you're in the mood for some spooky ghost stories. But the story that I'm going to tell you today is called The Seven Bones. And again, the story comes from Czechoslovakia to West Virginia. There once was a young girl and her lover went away to war. It was, it was sort of tradition in Czechoslovakia when men turned 21, um, they would go and serve in the armed forces for six years and then come back home. Mm. So her, her lover went to war. But after a long time, she hadn't heard from him and she started to worry that something had happened. So she went to an old fortune teller in her town and she asked if there was a way that she could find out whether her lover was alive or dead. So the fortune teller told her to gather seven different bones from seven different graves and boil them in a pot of water until midnight for seven nights. And at this time, there was also there was an epidemic going on. So there were all of these like shallow graves. People were being buried on top of each other. Old bones mm. um, like in graveyards were being dug up to make room for new bodies. Oh, um, So they just had piles of bones in the graveyards and everything so like that. So she didn't have to well, like dig in. Yeah, she didn't have to six rob feet graves. Under for seven <laughs> graves. I was like, that's a lot of work. Yeah. <laughs> so she found seven bones in the graveyard and she took them back to her house. Mm-hmm. And for seven nights, she would boil water with the bones until midnight. And every night the bones would say to her, pucha, 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 which means come, come, come. Mm-hmm. Um, she would just hear the bones whispering this until midnight every night. And just before midnight on the seventh night, she heard someone coming to her house. And what she heard was horse's hooves. Mm-hmm. So what the fortune teller had told her is that if your lover is alive, he will come to you on foot. Oh, no. If he is dead, he will come to you on horseback. If he is dead and he is a good spirit, he will come to you on a black horse. Mm -hmm. If he is dead and he is an evil spirit, he will come to you on a white horse. Yeah. So she hears hooves outside of her house and she peeks out the window and she sees her lover astride a white horse. Uh Uh-oh. Which means that he's an evil spirit. Um, (laughs) Great. He rides up to her house and he calls out to her and he says, my love, I've come back. I heard you and I came and I'm so glad to see you. Let's go get married. And so she remembers also what the fortune teller told her. She told her to assemble seven little bundles of cloth. And if she left her house with either her you know, lover alive or dead, if she left her house to bring those seven bundles of cloth and a rosary. And so she goes out to see her lover and she brings these seven bundles of cloth in her skirts and a rosary. Mm -hmm. And he's like, my love, I'm so glad I'm finally home and we can finally be together. Jump on the horse. We'll go get married. Nope. Um, And so she jumps up on the horse and rides away. They ride for a long, long time through the night. 
As they're writing, he's singing a song, and it says it goes, How the moon brightly shines, how the horse swiftly runs. But as they keep riding, his song changes a little bit, <laughs> and he starts to sing, How the moon brightly shines, how the ghosts swiftly glide. Uh-oh. Um, so... It's okay, it's okay. You know what? We knew it. We knew that this was coming. She's like, <laughs> all right, we prepared for this. <laughs> <laughs> so they keep riding until finally they get to a church. Mm-hmm. And around the church, as usual, there is a cemetery. Okay. And he says to her, we're at the church. Let's go. It's finally time. Let's get married. Jump off the horse. And she's like, well, you know, a gentleman would jump off the horse first and help me down. Mm-hmm. And he's like, oh, absolutely. Of course. I'm sorry. And he jumps off the horse. And she reaches under her skirts. She grabs these seven bundles of cloth and throws them in seven different directions. Oh. Her lover immediately turns horrible um his hands turn into claws and his eyes flash black and he runs at an inhuman speed towards the bundles Mm -hmm. meanwhile she slides down the opposite side of the horse and runs as fast as she can away from there good for her um and he doesn't chase her because he's busy tearing up these cloth bundles and he can't go after her until he's torn these bundles all open Um, so she's bought herself some time she runs off into the darkness until she comes across an abandoned cottage and she runs in through the door slams it and she hangs her rosary over the doorknob to protect her yeah she's you know breathing heavily and when she finally has a chance to take stock of the house she sees this dark cabin mostly abandoned as far as she can tell uh there are some chickens clucking in the corner of the cabin and then she looks over and there's a bench against the wall so it's not abandoned. It belongs to the chickens. <laughs> and she, as her eyes adjust to the darkness inside of this cabin, she sees that there's a, a figure laying on the bench along, along the side of the cabin. And she looks over and it is a a man lying dead. Oh. Where he, he died presumably in his sleep. Okay. And has just been here rotting. He's not like, he doesn't smell? Um. Okay, sorry. Mm-hmm. Why did you know that? Keep going. <laughs> so she's taking stock of this room. And she hears her lover running up at an inhuman speed. No. Oh, towards I hate that. the door of this cabin. And he runs up to the door and he starts banging on it and he rattles the doorknob and then he jumps back. Yes. Because he, really, he can't get into the house because he's an evil spirit mm-hmm. and she has hung a rosary on the doorknob. Mm-hmm. And he is just out there screaming. He's like, let me in. Let me in. We're supposed to be married. Oh, um, no. And <laughs> she sort of backs away from the door a little bit. And then her lover looks in through the window. He sees the man lying dead on the bench against the the side wall of the cabin. And he calls out to him. Oh, no. And he says, my friend, please help me open this door. And then the girl sees from this corpse, Mm -hmm. the body doesn't move, but the man gets up. Oh, okay. And walks over to the door. And he says brother, I'd help you if I could. And he like rattles the doorknob and he says, but I'm an evil spirit too. Oh, God. oh no, she's stuck in the house with an evil spirit. <laughs> well, he can't really do anything to her. Okay, because his body um, isn't moving. Yeah, okay. so he can't really do anything to her, but she is stuck in a house with an evil spirit. But there's nothing that the, the two spirits can do because they have this rosary on the doorknob and they're both 
powerless against the rosary, <laughs> which is great. That's pretty good. Yeah. Um, it's nice to know that there are weapons. So her fiancé is outside throwing a tantrum and screaming and roaring. And finally, he walks around to the side of the house and he starts scratching with his claw-like no. hands against the side of the cabin. And he calls out to the evil spirit inside and he says, Brother, help me. I- I'm going to break through this wall. And so she hears this and she presses her back against the far corner and she watches these two spirits just clawing at the wall and they're about to break through it. And the chickens, meanwhile, in the corner are (laughs) disturbed by this loud scratching sound, as you can probably imagine. (laughs) They're like, this is super fucked up. (laughs) she She has a thought. And so she yells out to the the chickens and she says, please, I need help. And this big rooster comes out from the middle of this. (laughs) Enter Foghorn Leghorn. (laughs) (laughs) This big rooster comes out from this clump of chickens. And she's like, please, please, rooster, if you cry out, if you deliver your cock crow, then the evil spirits will go away. Like, please, will you help me? I'm in danger. And this rooster says to her, No, I won't crow for you. When you fed the chickens, you always chased the rooster away. So why should I help you? (laughs) I mean, he has a point. (laughs) Yes, because roosters are aggressive. Yeah. uh, So they will eat all of the food and they will fight any of the hens who go after the food. (laughs) But he's like, well, you've always chased the roosters away. So why would I help you? This is what Um, would happen if Francis could talk. Yeah. (laughs) We needed my friends. Yeah. (laughs) And uh, meanwhile... She's watching these chips of wood come away in the evil spirit's hands against the wall of the house. And so she turns to the rooster again and she says, I, I'm never going to chase another rooster away. Please, please just help me. Just one cry from you and these ghosts will disappear. And the rooster is like, you promise? And she's <laughs> like, yes, I promise. I will never chase the roosters away again. And so the rooster crows and immediately the ghost of her lover outside of the house disappears. Hmm. And the dead man hears it. And a look of fear crosses his face, and he runs back over to his body, lays back down inside (laughs) of it, (laughs) disappears. Um, And the girl is saved. Is that... Did you look up roosters? Yes. Are you going to tell us? Okay, tell us about that, because I am so intrigued. So, something that comes especially from, like, Orthodox Christian religions Mm -hmm. is the idea of the rooster as an icon of, like, the resurrection of Christ. Yeah. Because of the idea of the dawn and like the crying of the dawn is like the resurrection, stuff like that. So Mm -hmm. a lot of times it's used in Christian religious imagery as like, oh, this is, this is the bird of light of dawn of Jesus and everything like that. So there, that's one explanation. (laughs) I've never compared roosters to doves. (laughs) Yeah. It's nice. But some other things, roosters are very prominent in voodoo, Haitian voodoo. Um, Roosters are a symbol of Mama Brigitte, who is, like a protective uh, uh, loa. I think I have that right. I think it's it's either her or Papa Legba is symbolized by a black rooster. Um, but they're like they're they're intensely protective spirits. Yeah. And something that comes from especially uh, medieval Europe is the idea that the rooster is a protective spirit and in the night because when you think of like a cock crowing, you think of the morning. morning. Yeah. But if you ever live near a farm, you know that they don't only crow in the morning. They crow all night long. That's why you're not allowed to have them in residential neighborhoods. Yeah. They're literally illegal in everywhere except for 
like rural areas. Yeah, but they crow all night long. And so the thinking was that if a rooster crows in the middle of the night, it's because an evil spirit tried to visit your house and Ooh. the rooster scared them off. Yeah. Um, which is great. So roosters are just considered like this massively protective entity. And especially in the folklore of the Ozarks, it's like if there's a ghost, a rooster will scare it off, basically, mm-hmm. <laughs> which is great. Some other things, uh, just from the notes in the book by Ruthann Music, um, she talks about there is a cantata, which is composed based on a poem of this story. The cantata is called The Spectre's Bride, and it's very beautiful. Okay. And the poem that it's based on is by Karel Yaramir Urban, which I just Sounds did that right one by the me. seat of my pants, um, which is called The Spectre's Bride. Yeah. Um, and I read the poem, and it's a little bit different. It's There's no fortune teller. She just sort of is like, oh, I wish my lover was here. And then he rides up. She doesn't know that he's dead, but he rides up and whisks her away. Um, And as they're riding, he keeps being slowed down because she's wearing a rosary and a cross and she has a book of hymns in her pocket. Mm -hmm. Um, And so he keeps being slowed down by these things. And and she's, he's like, are you wearing, like, what is that that you're wearing? And she's like, oh, it's just a cross that my mom gave me. And he's Mm -hmm. like, oh, well, that's going to wrap around your neck and kill you. So how about I just, and then, like, throws it. (laughs) Oh, no. Um, And then they get to the, they get to the cemetery slash chapel. And rather than there being one dead man in the cabin who rises up, she escapes from him in the cemetery and runs to the morgue. Oh, no. Where the one dead man is waiting. But he's not the only one who wakes up. Yeah. All of the specters in the cemetery wake up and all of them are howling at her and screaming and trying to... Yes. Absolutely terrifying. Um, And she gets out of it not by... uh, Not through a rooster crow, but by praying to God. Not as fun. Not as fun. Not as fun. And then God makes a rooster crow. Oh, okay. Well, as long as the rooster's there, I suppose. But still not as fun as being face-to-face in a small enclosure with a dead man. Yeah. And the moral of the story is that... Pray. Yeah. Uh, (laughs) Stop being in love with people. Start being in love with God. Um, And that's the moral of our podcast, too. (laughs) Welcome to Sword of the Story, which is in itself a religious podcast. I hate it. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, but you also signed on for six more seasons. That's true. (laughs) Um, Also, incidentally, the cantata by Anton Dvorak is called The Spectre's Bride, but was originally called The Bride's Chemise, uh, which is like the bride's bra <laughs> yeah <laughs> like her sexy little blouse yeah uh but he had to change the name because uh victorian audiences that he was presenting it to were like that's too lewd that's nasty and they're and right <laughs> what else this is tale type 365 uh the dead bridegroom carries off his bride what else what else what else that's really cool i really liked that yeah i think that that's i think that that's all i got I but like uh, all of the symbolism i like all of the little like nods to very old folk traditions and stuff like that's super cool yeah there's a really cool um at the introduction of the section immigrant ghosts uh ruthann music sort of draws a line in between the different immigrant ghost stories that she uh presents here she says one of the interesting things about these european tales are the national beliefs that are shown in them for example the italian stories favor the theme of the possession of a living body by the spirit of a dead person i have some half a dozen italian variations of this theme In the Balkans, it is the vampire theme, which is most common. There's a vampire story in this, Mm. kind of. Yet another notable feature of the European ghost tales that I have found in West Virginia is the malevolence of the spirits in them. Few of these wandering souls are kind or helpful. Perhaps the European tales rooted in an older tradition retain more of the fears of early man. Yeah. Which is interesting. Yeah. 
Because in a lot of the other ghost stories in this book, the ghosts are, they're trying to solve their own murder, or they're trying to have the truth come out, or they're trying to save someone from some kind of evil. So a lot of them are benevolent, but a lot of, like, the stories in the immigrant ghost stories section are all, like, <laughs> terrifying. <laughs> the one that's about a vampire is that this this woman's husband dies and uh, in the middle of the night she keeps like feeling a corpse making out with her. Ew! And she goes to the priest and she's like, hey, my dead husband I think is making out with me and what do I do? And so he tells her to bring a spool <laughs> so of... So the priest was like, uh, can I ask you what you were wearing? <laughs> <laughs> uh, the priest tells her to bring a spool of red thread to bed with her. Yeah. And then when her ghost husband starts making out with her to like subtly tie it around his finger. Mm. And then in the morning, see where the thread leads to. Mm -hmm. um, and so she wakes up in the morning and sees that the red thread leads to her husband's grave outside of the house. And the priest tells her to nail his body into the ground with a stake. Yeah. Uh, so, vampire. Yeah, vampire stuff. But, um, like, instead of sucking blood, he's sucking face. Yeah. Woo! <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, anyways, all of the stories in this book are incredible, and I wish I could tell all of them. Uh, and maybe, and maybe someday I will. Maybe one day you will. <laughs> uh, we'll link this book in the show notes. And we also, on our Instagram, we put pictures of the books that we use and sometimes paintings and stuff. And yeah. Little tidbits. So, you can follow our Instagram at Sword of the Story if you want um, info on this book this we week. Yes. We also have a TikTok, which is also sort of the story, all one word, no punctuation, and a Twitter by the same handle. Yep. Um, and we also have a TeePublic, tpublic.com slash user slash sort of the story. Yeah. Um, so if you want any of the dumbass shit that we say on this fucking <laughs> podcast on a shirt, you can get it there. <laughs> uh, yeah. And if you have ideas for merch that we've said that you would like to see in TeePublic, email us. Sort yeah. of the story at gmail.com. I'm sorry. I'm looking at this microphone. Something bit it. There's a whole ass mouth shape. <laughs> yeah. One of the cats was chewing on the styrofoam of the microphone, and uh, it's such a pronounced bite mark. Yeah, it's either one of the cats bottom? got to it, or like a small mountain lion. <laughs> yeah, or like it's honest, shredded. <laughs> it's wild. Right, we're gonna have to fi figure that out. Okay, guys, that was an amazing story. Those Thank were you. two. Those story. are sort of some stories, guys. Sort um, of a couple of stories. Yeah, and we yeah. will see you next week. Bye. Bye. We're doing a test. And a test. And a test. And, and a one, test. One, two, test. three, four. <laughs> Just, you know, we're tap dancing, but in socks, so you can't hear it. You can't hear it. Um, but it was really good. And oh, my you were God. really impressed. Max, I didn't know you could do a full backflip. Yeah? You want to see me do it six more times? Yeah, really quick. And. Woo! Yeah. Oh, okay. No, five is fine. Five is fine. You don't have to do the full six. What if I do five two times in a row? <laughs> I'm just you really looking for your approval. <laughs> I just feel like I'm not even that good at doing six backflips, but you you're know, really you've given me confidence five. today. <laughs> we'll try again next week. All right. <laughs>